0: I'm Rabbi Nicole Guzic.
1: And I'm Rabbi Erez Sherman. And,
0: and this, this is Sinai, Sinai Cast. Cast. Catch up with Sinai Temple's latest programs, speakers, exclusive content,
1: candid conversations, and inspiring connections.
0: Follow us now. Bringing Sinai wherever you go.
2: So. Who do we have here today? I think everybody recognizes, especially the Sinai community, uh, who we go to Barat Hall. Uh, he is a very familiar face, but for those uh, who may not recognize his new kippah, uh, let me give him a, uh, a, a little introduction here. So, Rabbi Artson, uh, Rabbi Dr. Bradley Shavit Artson holds the Abner and Roz Goldstein. Dean's Chair of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies and is the Vice President of the American Jewish University. Rabbi Artson has been a passionate advocate of social justice, human dignity, diversity, and inclusion. For 10 years, Rabbi Artson served as the Rabbi of Congregation Elot in Mission Viejo, which grew under his tenure from about 200 families to over 600. During that period, his Introduction to Judaism course helped over 200 people convert to Judaism, and 10 of his congregants have entered the rabbinate in turn. Pretty good. In 1999, he began his work at the University of Judaism, now the American Jewish University. Uh, You want to think of what Rabbi Artson does on his free time? Well, he's the author of 11 books a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, the, Israel, the Times of Israel, the Jewish Journal, and has written over 300 articles in several journals and magazines. He's also the dean of the Zacharias Frankel College at the University of Potsdam, Germany, ordaining conservative Masorti rabbis for Europe under the religious supervision of the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies. Get this, guys. For over 20 years, Rabbi Artson has joined the Sinai Temple community, serving as the beloved Barad Hall rabbi. And we all miss you so very much. Thank you. Thank you. And we are we are so grateful for your continued great health. Rabbi Artson is married to his wife, Alana, and they have twins. Uh, um, Parents of twins Shira and Jacob. Um, I want to give you guys also just a little secret that uh, wasn't in this, uh, this write up here, but uh, something about Rabbi Artson that you may not know. Um, when he was growing up, he had a pet octopus, that it was, he, but he, he expressed to me, uh, Octavia?
1: Ichabod Clancy.
2: Ichabod Clancy, uh, thank you for the correction. And by the way, Ichabod Clancy could not observe kashrut. So even as a rabbi, he had a challenge with that, but still gave him love. I'm sure he still gave him Torah lessons. So without further ado, let me introduce Rabbi Arson. Thank you.
1: Thank you I will just share with uh, you so many good friends um, that while Ichabod Clancy, the octopus, loved shellfish, At that stage in my life, so did I. (laughs) Thank you for the opportunity to be here with you today. Thank you for what I hope will be a series of really uh, interesting conversations. I was mentioning to Abner and Roz the other day that knowing I was gonna be speaking to you has given me the chance over the last several weeks to think about things I don't normally think about. And so I'm grateful for that. It's kind of pushed me. Um, And I think it's a fitting metaphor for my friendship across the decades with Abner and Roz, who have been among my closest friends and have been mentors to me and guides as I know they are to so many other people. So to the two of you, thank you yet again. I couldn't imagine my life without the two of you, so thank you. Thank you. So I want to start with a story, and it's an old story, and it's a story that many of you have already heard. It's found in the Talmud in Masechet Gitin, for those of you who want to look it up. And it deals with the destruction of the second temple. So the Romans have surrounded Jerusalem The city is besieged. The residents are starving. The Jews, of course, are fighting each other because that's what we do when the going gets tough. And in all of that, the leading rabbi of his generation was a sage named Yohanan ben Zakkai. And he tells his people that he needs to get out of Jerusalem and he needs to meet with the Roman general. And the only way to get out of Jerusalem, because, of course, it's a siege, so they're not letting anyone in or out, is he pretends to have died. They put him in a casket. They act like they're mourning, and they carry him out of the city. The Roman soldiers stop the casket. They are about to look inside. His students go crazy. You can't do that. This is a great sage. That would be a desecration. So the soldiers back down and they let him out of the city. The minute he's safely outside, he gets out of the casket and he marches to the tent of Vespasian, who is the Roman general in charge of the war. And he says to Vespasian, you are going to be the next emperor of Rome. And in exchange for this prophecy, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to give me a city in which I can launch a school. Now, rabbis and schools, as Rabbi Wolpe explained earlier, is an association we make as obvious, rabbis are teachers. But that isn't what holy people did back in the day. In the time of Yohanan ben Zakkai, there were no schools no batei midrash, no yeshivot, people who wanted to become sages would basically move in to a sages' home. And they would follow that scholar all day long, and they would just listen to them talk about whatever they talk, and they would watch how they lived their life, and they would learn that way how to be a rabbi. If you're interested in doing that, I'm sure that Rabbi Guzik and Rabbi Sherman would be... (laughs) Happy to welcoming you uh-huh, they their bunk beds, and, and every frankly, they could use whatever help you want to offer them, too. So, Or you could come to rabbinical school. That's another. It's a little easier. But the reason I want to tell you this is that the establishment of Yavna looks obvious when you look backwards in history. But at the time, it wasn't obvious at all. Judaism was a temple-centered religion. Judaism was a religion of koanim, making sacrifices, of levim dealing with purity laws. The idea that Judaism could survive by being a religion of study and learning and teaching, no religion in the world had ever tried that. It was completely new. It's so new that today when scholars speak about worship that is based on reading a book, that is to say, found today in mosques and churches and synagogues, they call that synagogue worship. Because we, meaning Rabban Yochadan, realize that if Judaism was to survive, in a radically different time then it, he had to be prepared to do things differently. Can you picture that? Can you put yourself in a time where no religion in the world acted that way? Every religion in the world was about bloody sacrifice. And Rabban Yohanan says, no, no, you give me schoolhouses and I will save Torah. You give me the opportunity to teach and to learn, and I guarantee you this tradition will thrive. We live in such a time now. This age is radically discontinuous from the times that have come before it. And and I want us to just dwell on that for a moment. There have been two times to my knowledge in history where the world started afresh, or tried. The first is the Enlightenment. That period in the 18th century, in the 1700s, when people looked at the world they had inherited, the medieval world in Europe, and frankly throughout North Africa and Western Asia, was a world of theism, a world of collective identity, hierarchy and tradition. That is to say, the entire medieval period was defined by you're either Christian or Muslim. That's partly why we were so problematic, because we didn't fit in either category. But the world approached its thinking and its feeling through theistic faith, through religion. And your identity wasn't as an individual. Your identity was what part of a group are you a member of? If your father was an aristocrat, so were you. If you went into the church, then you were clergy. If your parents were serfs, you were a serf. Notice again, we didn't fit that pattern either. But your identity was given to you by your parents. Most people died within a square mile of where they were born. And there was a hierarchy which people believed started with God and then angels, but it went to the king and the pope and archbishops and local nobility all the way down to serfs. And that was how God intended the world to be. And then finally, it was traditional. Things that were new were to be distrusted. You did it the old way. And you learned to not question because you assumed the wisdom of precedent. And then came the Enlightenment people like Voltaire and Rousseau and Locke and Hume and others, and they blew up every one of those pieces. The world is not governed by a supernatural being in full control. Not everything that happens is divine will. Sometimes things just happen. And the world is a great big machine. And so you have to understand the mechanisms of the machine. And in that world, your place is determined not by your blood, but by your personality and your talent and your vision. You are the captain of your own soul. And that means that each of us are different and that the way we survive in the world is through innovation. These are things that contemporary America, Europe, much of the world now takes for granted. But you'll notice that is still the battleground where cultural wars are fought. Are we determined by precedent or are we free to innovate new solutions? Is the world exactly the way God wants it and when you try to make a change, you're fighting God? Or in fact, has our species always boldly stumbled into novelty and that's who we are at our core? Is your individuality the source of your greatness, or is it ego and your biggest problem? And the challenge for us as Jews is that Judaism comes from that pre-enlightenment time. Our sacred literature, the Torah, the Mishnah, the Talmud, codes, comes from pre-enlightenment. We are a collectivity, the Jewish people. And our place has been determined for us by our birth. So that in the most traditional sectors of the Jewish world, your identity is determined first and foremost by your gender. If you're a woman, you have a path set out for you. If you are a man, You have a very different path, and women are not free to choose the path that men are free to choose, and men are not free to choose the path that women are living. There's a determination built in. Because your gender is not chance, your parenthood is not chance, things are given to you. And your job, if you have a problem with the tradition, is to get over it. But we don't live in that world anymore, do we? Right? we? We live in neighborhoods of our own choosing. We decide what professions, if any, we're going to follow, what kind of life we're going to have. We decide who we're going to love, how long we're going to love them, Our kids insist on that as well. I grew up completely not observant. And at the age of 12, my daughter Shira turned to me and she said, Daddy, when I grow up, I'm going to be like you, but the opposite. (laughs) Being the opposite of me could mean a lot of different things. So I said, what do you mean by that, sweetie? And she said, well, you know how you ate trafe until you started keeping kosher? Yeah. She said that, the opposite. And my daughter is good to her word. But I delight in that because I'm a child of the Enlightenment. I want my daughter to be herself. I don't want her to be a carbon copy of every woman who came before her. I love her uniqueness. And and so the challenge I want to put to us is the struggle of Judaism for the last 300 years has been how do we take this pre-Enlightenment tradition and live it in an Enlightenment context? And we're all trying our best. We're all trying to figure out how to do that, except for those of us who are not living in a post-Enlightenment context. There are some Jewish communities that make a choice. We've watched your Enlightenment. We think it's a big mistake. We want nothing to do with it. So no television, no internet no reading the news, and we're going to follow our old ways. We're not going to read your novels. We're not going to watch your movies. Right? There are small sectors within the Christian world who do that as well. And I'm not here to judge whether that's a good choice or a bad choice, partly because they're not interested in my opinion of it. Right? They're making that choice. But we aren't. We do not choose to live in such a world. We choose to be in the midst of all the cultural swirling and changing, and that creates a real challenge. How do you decide what in Jewish culture and identity you want to perpetuate? What is of value to own and transmit And what do you want to determine you're going to let it go? It will be a thing of the past. We can study it for what it was. We can honor it for its role in the past, but it doesn't walk with us into the present and the future. And the the history of the Jews of this country is an intensification of that process. So the first part of the history of the Jews coming to to America is very easy. Um, Jews got here in 1654 we were not especially welcomed by the then governor of New Amsterdam which has been known for the last several hundred years as New York the good news for us is that at least in the struggle for who runs New York the Dutch lost and the Jews won I think that victory was pretty decisive But from 1654 to 1880, Jewish life in America was sporadic, assimilatory, and ephemeral. Meaning, not many of the people who, the Jews who came here then, have Jewish descendants now. They didn't build lasting institutions. They didn't figure out a way to make Jewish identity Permanent and meaningful in this country. And so Jewish history, like the Passover Haggadah, you didn't see that coming, starts twice. It has two beginnings. The second beginning is in 1880. In 1880, the Russian Tsar did us a great favor, and he made life in Russia and the Pale of Settlement especially awful. And so those Ashkenazim in the room, almost all of you are descended from the Jews who from 1880 to 1920 said, that's it, we're getting out of here. My people came from Odessa and from a place called Kherson, which has been in the news of late. Thanks again to a Russian Tsar. And my name, Artsen, is what happens if you take the word Kherson, and then if you're from there, you're kherson So you chop off the ch at the beginning, and you chop off the ski at the end, and you're more or less left with Artsen by the time you get to Ellis Island. And from the 1880s to the 1920s, the largest immigration of Jews to this shore took place. Some three million Jews flooded these shores for the same reason that every free immigrant has ever chosen to come here. Opportunity, liberty, freedom, diversity. This country has been imperfect as it is a beacon of liberty and a lure for freedom loving people. And it gets the gutsiest of those people. The people in the Pale of Settlement who said, I'm not going to wait to see if things get better here. I'm going to go west. And so your ancestors and mine, those of you Ashkenazi, they came during this period. And the only thing that ended this massive immigration, was not that the Jews got tired of moving here. It's that a dysfunctional Congress closed down immigration. Sound familiar? So so with the doors of immigration shut, that period of Jewish history ends. But that was a period in which for the first time, Jews were determined to retain their Jewish identity. Not necessarily traditional, we all know the stories of tefillin and wigs thrown overboard the minute they got into the Atlantic leaving Europe, but they wanted to stay Jewish. And so when they got here, they opened up institutions to perpetuate Jewish identity and to defend the Jews who were here to make sure they have jobs, to make sure they get fed, to make sure they have housing. All of the social agencies, HIAS and others, are the product of this period of Jewish life, as were the three oldest institutions of Jewish learning, HUC, JTS in New York, and, and YU. They're all products of this period, right? So, Yeshiva University, right? But for their children, there's a different task. For those Jews now born in the Lower East Side, in Brooklyn, in the Bronx, even Staten Island, for those Jews, the challenge is, how do we be American Jews? How do we retain a Jewish identity? And how do we become real Americans? Not like our immigrant parents. And this is the period in which all of those Jews flooded into the suburbs. So the great expansion was Jews now living in a place that had never had Jews, Long Island, the outskirts of Los Angeles, Chicago, all those areas where Jews live now, they were first inhabited by Jews then, which meant the job of this period from the 20s to the 60s was building the institutions to allow these Jews to retain their Jewish identity. That by way is the opposite of what the institutions they built in the first wave were. The job of the first wave institutions were to help them Americanize. But these ones were to help the children of the suburb retain some Jewish knowledge and some Jewish identity. And that meant for the first time the challenge was how do you live in two civilizations? How do you live fully American and fully Jewish. And the ethos of this period is that there's no conflict between the two. A good Jew is a good American, right? Justice Brandeis was the originator of that notion, but, but it was widespread. There's no conflict between American and Jewish values, between American life and Jewish life. We are being good at both when we're good at either. This is the time when people put swimming pools in their synagogues. Because if Judaism is a culture and a civilization, then there's a Jewish way to play basketball, there's a Jewish way to swim. The shul with a pool comes from this period. My dad grew up at the East Midwood Jewish Center in Brooklyn. There's an Olympic pool in the basement. There you are. There's also a stained glass window on the top of the sanctuary that is among the most beautiful in the country. And then the other thing you will note, since I said 1920s to 1960s, is that this is the period where Zionism revs up, where the Jewish people around the world and in then Palestine take upon themselves the mission of recreating an independent and democratic Jewish center. Hebrew speaking. Liberated from two things. Liberated from the shackles of Gentile domination and liberated from the shackles of rabbinic domination. And it's not clear who the early Zionists were more afraid of. But it was clear they... New Jewish identity was a national identity. It was a cultural identity, which drew upon Jewish history, of course, but it reads the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, not as the words of God, but as the collective expression of the national genius of the Jewish people. So when you wanna know what's at the heart of being Jewish, You read this literature the way any other people would read its earliest literature, to find out who you are. The next phase of Jewish history starts in 1967. Can someone tell me what big thing happened in the Jewish world in 1967? They didn't kill us is what happened. right? All those armies that invaded and miraculously and amazingly, Jerusalem was unified. And Israel, for the first time in its existence, didn't have to worry about would it survive next week. That's not to say it, didn't, it had still had long-term security worries, that has never changed. But But they knew they could go to sleep tonight and wake up tomorrow. They knew that. And that, coupled with what was going on in the United States, changed the Jewish world yet again. Because for the first time in 2,000 years, Jews were not being portrayed in the media as weak and subject to the buffeting of other powers. We had defended ourselves, we had defeated the armies of larger nations that were seeking to obliterate us. We were not victims anymore. We determined our own destiny. And the irony of this is that this came at the same time that in the United States there were groups of people who had been marginalized from the beginning of American history, who were also determining their own destiny. So the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, these are all groups of people marginalized and made weak who said no more. We are going to stand up, we will tell you what it is we want out of life, and you will get out of our way. That work is not over. There's still much to be done. But what Jews gained from this double lesson, an Israel strong enough to stand up against its enemies, marginalized Americans saying, we're not putting up with it anymore and we're not hiding anymore. As a child, my symbol of this period is up until this time, my mom had this bouffant haircut, you know, many of the women will remember that thing, you know, and it looked beautiful and totally unnatural. For those of you who don't know, if you look at the early, I, early show uh, Bewitched, the way she has her hair was how my mom had her hair. And then one day in the 60s, she came home with someone else's hair on her head. And it wasn't this big puffy straight thing. All of a sudden, it was, well, shall we just say,
3: Jewy. <laughs> but Jews around the country did that.
1: Not just in our appearance, Jews start wearing Stars of David in public. Some Jews start wearing kipot in public. We start being Jewish on the street, and that's a sea change. That had never happened in this country before. This is where we listened to Marlo Thomas singing that we're free to be you and me, and we said, hey, that applies to us too. This is the age of the Jewish catalog. Those of you who are around for it, it changed American Jewish life. It's a series of books that were handwritten, cut and paste, but it was about, you don't need institutions to be Jewish. Here's how you make your own tallit. Here's how you cook your own challah. Here's, you can do this for yourself. And, and that new phase saw us through the last I don't know when. But what's clear now is we're no longer in that period. I joke with my wife that I would make a perfect conservative rabbi if this were 1973. I know exactly how to be a rabbi for 1973. I know how to talk. I know how to modulate my voice. I can still tie a tie, which none of my male students can do anymore. I'm looking at you, man.
3: And, and none of
1: the rules that applied when I was in rabbinical school are relevant to where we're heading now. They're not. I'll give you a few examples of how these old rules have broken down. Synagogues across the country are struggling for membership. And if you look at some of the most vibrant synagogues, When you walk into the synagogue service, the young adults are in their 60s. That, by the way, is not a complaint. I feel good about that. (laughs) Applications to rabbinical school have crashed. In the year 2007, the top five non-Orthodox rabbinical schools between them had an incoming class of 100. In the year 2022, that is to say last year, those same five schools had an incoming class collectively of 50. Israel used to be a universal point of pride for the Jewish people. And now it's the one thing a rabbi can't give a sermon about. Because whatever you say on the topic, once you get past, I love Israel, that part is pretty non-controversial, but the minute you then say anything else, someone in the room is deeply offended. Rabbi, how dare you not mention this? How could you say that? Are you not remembering that? Right? Um, it is the one topic that is so explosive that it's just so explosive. And, and then the other change, of course, is that in the 1960s, the intermarriage rate in the United States was 5%. And now it is 70%. 7 Now, again, I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. The great thing about facts is it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. Like gravity or don't like gravity, but gravity doesn't care about your opinion. <laughs> so you can like who your grandchildren are dating, and more than likely, you don't like who your grandchildren are dating. Um, And that may have nothing to do with the religion of the people they're dating. But you don't get a vote. You don't get a vote. So the days, for example, when a rabbi is saying, I won't officiate at your wedding, there was a time where people would think twice about getting married if the rabbi wouldn't do it. I can tell you as a rabbi, nobody cancels their wedding because the rabbi won't officiate. Nobody. So all of this is to say, we live in an unprecedented time yet again. And I just want to remind you, in previous unprecedented times, what got us through was not doing the same thing in the same way. But it was also not about giving up. So I just want to be clear. I have given my life professionally to the idea that serving the one God through a life of Torah and mitzvot is the greatest possible use of my life. I continue to believe that is true. When my traif threatening daughter had her bat mitzvah, I gave the shortest bat mitzvah speech in the history of the Jewish people. I said, Shira, I want you to know I love you beyond my ability to speak, and I want you to know that being Jewish is the greatest privilege you haven't earned, and you will spend the rest of your life earning that privilege. I believe, and she's doing a good job of that so far. So what that means is, for those of us who love Judaism, who love its values, its texture, its foods, its smells, and its rhythms, for those of us who walk down the street of Yerushalayim, even when we're in West Los Angeles, For those of us who look at those kinds of stones and we think, right there on the wall, and we think, that's what paradise looks like. well, For those of us like that, our challenge is we have to prepare for a world that we cannot enter. You understand? My home base is 1973. But no one's going there with me. Except for you guys. Right? So so what do we do to take this beautiful, ancient, wonderful wisdom tradition, and how do we bring it to the next generation? So I want to wrap up with a couple thoughts. Years ago, I went to a fabulous museum in Tel Aviv. It's now at the University of Tel Aviv. They've changed their name. It's now called Anu. But it used to be Beit Hatzfussot. They called it Beit Hatzfussot because they're all Sephardim. What can I tell you? Um, but it was the Museum of the Diaspora. And the final room of it was this magnificent. They had the Jewish home through the ages. and. Everything contemporary in it was in black and white. The furniture, the style of clothing, how they got their light, what kind of food was on the table, all black and white. And then in color were the things that get passed from one generation to another. The menorah, the Sidur, the Tanakh. In each home, in each place across the ages. So what I'm inviting us to think about right now is, how do we make changes in the black and white stuff so that we can successfully transmit the colored stuff, the things that deserve to be preserved? And I want to I give you some signs of hope. I'm just as befuddled as you, but I want to give you some signs of hope. So it turns out, I mentioned the Astonishing rise in the number of intermarriages taking place in America. Here's another statistic. It used to be that when people intermarried, their children had no Jewish identity. But the latest studies, the Pew Center study, the Brandeis study, even the Jewish Federation study shows that the number of children of intermarried couples who identify as Jews is at an all-time high. It just might be that they don't go where they're not welcomed. And that maybe we need to think better about how to welcome them. Here's another shocking study. The Jewish Federation did the first comprehensive study of the population of Jews in Los Angeles. If you haven't read it, it's really worth reading. It's quite eye-opening. Take a guess which group has more regular points of Jewish contact. 60 and up, or 20 to 40? It's the 20 to 40s. They are having more Jewish moments every week, more connections to Jewish things, than the 60s and up. Nobody expected that result. Nobody. Right. Um, Now, here's some challenges with that. We don't know how to monetize it. No, that's a real problem, because if you can't, how do you sustain it? We don't know how to serve it. Like, how do you help these Jews be Jews when they just are doing it on their own? Um, We don't know how to encourage them. We don't know how to introduce them to each other. Like, there's a lot of challenges there, but they're doing more Jewish. Here's another weird statistic. 40% of the Jews polled in the latest national population study said they consider themselves atheists or agnostic or nothing in particular, 40%. One in five American Jews say they have no religion. They identify with no religion at all. 94% say that they're proud to be Jewish. (laughs) Three quarters of them say that they have a strong sense of identification with the Jewish people. 40% of American Jews have been to Israel. There's more Hebrew knowledge in American jewelry now than at any point in the past. That's not just because there are Israelis living in Los Angeles. So the biggest shift it seems to be, and again, I don't want you to decide whether you like this or not because facts don't care how we feel about them. But it seems to be that American Jews no longer think of Judaism primarily as a religion. They think of it primarily as a culture and an identity. Now here's the kicker. I'm an old enough rabbi to remember when that was true. The last time that was true was when the Jewish people were living in our own land independently. During the time of the Tanakh, during the time of the first and second temples, Judaism wasn't a religion. In fact, there is no biblical Hebrew word for religion. Because Judaism wasn't about what do you believe and what rituals you practice. If you're an Israelite, if you are B'nai or B'not Yisrael. You speak Hebrew. You live in your land. You follow the calendar of your people. You make pilgrimage to the temple from time to time. You listen to the prophets harangue you for not giving enough to the UJA. (laughs) I guess it was the UJI. Um, But it wasn't a religion. Do you know when Judaism became a religion? When we went into exile under the Romans. Religion is a Latin word, religio, to bind. And it was a category of Roman law. Old religions were legitimate. The Romans hated new religion. Right? Which is why they looked at all those Christians and thought of them as cat food for very big cats, right? because a religio licita, a legitimate religion, was something Romans respected. And so to fit into Roman law so that Jews could become citizens of the Roman Empire, we became a religion. And then in the medieval period, when everyone had to fill in the blank on their form. What religion are you? I'm a Christian. I'm a Muslim. Well, we decided that was our category too. So we became a religion. But here's what I'd like to suggest to you. Maybe now that we are again a free people in our own land, Maybe now that 80% of the Jewish people in the world are located in the world's two greatest democracies. Maybe Judaism is spilling out over the constricted borders of religion and it is becoming again, identity and culture. That's not to say that Jewish culture doesn't have God and Torah at the center. But can we be really honest for just one moment here, just between us? Do you think every member of this congregation believes in the existence of a supernatural being that they can talk to? Don't answer out loud. (laughs) But I'm suspecting they don't. I'm suspecting there's an awful lot of people who are among my heroes, people who make possible really beautiful Jewish life and institutions, who, when they're asked publicly about, for example, God, or the obligatory nature of mitzvot, they say, well, I'm not sure. Which, by the way, we all know is a lie. It's just they're being polite. They do know. They just don't want to say it. But they also know that they can't imagine life without a strong synagogue, without a community to be there for them. It's not metaphysics. It's about community. It's about life. It's about who do you identify with and what gives your life purpose and meaning. My father passed away last January. Don't even ask me about last year. My father passed away last January. I would not have survived had it not been for my friends in the Jewish community. And I want to be clear, I don't mean friend friends, I mean the community. The community swooped in and surrounded us with care and helped hold our grief and carried us through the year. I have friends who are not part of the Jewish community. I have a friend whose mother died two weeks ago and he went to work the next day. And the day his mother died, he took that day off from work and his firm called him because they needed to locate some of the files he had on the day his mother died. And he still hasn't had a ritual moment. He hasn't had a chance to grieve and sob and be surrounded by people. So. So what if we embrace that? We are once again a free people in our own land. Whether we live there or not, we all benefit from that. Even from here, we can feel what it means to be free. And that, by the way, is a vindication of the American experiment as well. So if that's true, then as the old norms fall away, as we try to figure out... Well then, how do we do this Jewish in a new age? I want to invite us to be pioneers. The Book of Lamentations, the book that's about the destruction of the temple, the end of an age, has that famous line, we all sing, Hashivenu Adonai v'nashuva Take us back, Lord, to yourself, Renew us as in the days of old. That's the Jewish question. How do we renew our people in an unprecedented time? And I'd like to offer four pillars of this new identity. The first has to be learning. You cannot have a meaningful cultural identity if you don't know it. If you know it, you're free to play with it. You're free to take from parts of it. But if you want to be a great jazz musician, you had better first master the classics. And then you know what to play with. That's true in Judaism too. If you want to be able to be the master of your own Jewish identity, then we need to create multiple and diverse opportunities for Jews to become literate for them to know our language, which is Hebrew, and to know our literature, which is among the world's great literature. At the height of, its, of the sales of Harry Potter, international bestseller, it was outsold every day by the Bible. We gave the world its greatest book. How dare we not know it? Second... Community. Turns out, no surprise, Americans are among the loneliest people in this generation. COVID hasn't helped that. But even pre-COVID, best-selling books were titled Bowling Alone. How do you help people to see what they don't even know they're missing? How do we let people see the community face of Judaism? I know that for me, having grown up not at all religious, I'm grateful to those observant Jews in college who kept inviting me back to their Shabbat table, even when I had no clue what we were doing. Because there's nothing like regular Shabbat meals to help people fall in love with Judaism. No offense to us rabbis, it's not the sermons, it's not whether you did Musaf. Come to the Shabbat table. And so we need to come up with what is the Shabbat table to which everyone is invited and how do we get them there. Third, Jewish practice is some of the most beautiful, beautiful ways to be human I know. We all know young people, even not so young people, who are crazy about meditation. It's amazing. I talked to someone last week who went on a week-long silent retreat. I will tell you that in my case, my throat would have exploded. (laughs) But what he told me he loved about it, he loved the focus, he loved the discipline, he loved doing it with others. And in my head, you know what this rabbi is thinking? Minion. (laughs) You just discovered Minion, except that at a Minion you can talk. (laughs) But Judaism is a spiritual discipline. And for those people, not everybody, some people don't want spiritual discipline, some people don't want a silent week. But for those who are hungry for that, there's an awful lot. I have people in my rabbinical school who grew up pretty secular, and then they spent time at an ashram in India, and then they came home to be with their parents for the high holidays, and they're stuck in their suburban synagogue, and they're bored out of their mind, and there's nothing else to do, so they open up the machzor, and they discover that during their year in India, someone has smuggled spirituality into the machzor. <laughs> who knew? But the mistake we often make is first we tell people what the ritual means, and by the time we've done that, they're already out the door. So trust the ritual. Do habdala, and don't tell them what it's about. Let them enjoy the light and the song and the being together and the darkness descending. They'll get it. These rituals teach themselves. Don't clutter it with words. And then finally, I love the fact that in Judaism, it's not about faith, it's about faithfulness. The word emunah, that our Christian neighbors translate as faith, they mean by faith, are the following statements true or false? We Jews have never agreed to any of that. But what we do know is we're not letting go. We're not going away, you can count on our showing up. That's faithfulness, and faithfulness to my mind is way more important than faith. Because if you show up, we can build something together and your thoughts are your own business. So let's show some faithfulness in hope, in justice, in love, in relationship, in each other. And if we do that, then I think we have a shot at figuring it out. Last thing I want to say to you specifically. The challenge for those of you who are my age and older is we have to trust the young. And that's very hard to do. I know that. It's hard for me, too. But what I can tell you is I watch my rabbinical students and I watch the alumni of the Ziegler School and they create brilliant, amazing things that I would never have thought of in a million years. And I can't tell you the number of times I'm a scholar in residence in some community with a rabbi who I ordained and they do something I've never thought of in a million years, and someone comes up and tells them, that was really wonderful, and they say, I learned it from him. (laughs) No, you did not. But what I did is I ran interference for them. I gave them what they needed so they could gather the sparks of light and then they could take it into a promised land that I'm not allowed to enter. And that is the job for all of us. We have the privilege of providing the next generation with the tools and the space and the resources, and then we get out of the way. And we let them create Judaism. We let them play Judaism. We let them dance Judaism and celebrate a Judaism we barely could imagine, but it's delicious. And if we do that, then just as our grandparents had to trust in us and get out of the way, if we trust the generation and the generation after, we make their work possible and we get out of the way, then I want to tell you this is one rabbi who believes that the ancient God is not done with us. Our ancient covenant still has kick, and it will be there long after we are watching from a better place. Shalom.
3: you, I'm not in a rush, so it's you,
1: you whatever you want. Is
0: this working? Yes? We'll keep talking. You can all hear me? Yes. Yeah, see. Okay. So I have a few questions to ask. I have two or three questions I want to ask, and then we're going to open it up for a few more questions. We know it's getting a little bit later in the afternoon, and so we just we welcome you to stay and continue the dialogue with all of us, and we also understand um, whenever you need to leave, you need to leave. Um, but what I have to say is, uh, first of all, what a pleasure it was to learn and listen to you this morning, this afternoon. But I think um, one of the last times I was on a stage or a Bima with Rabbi Artson, I don't know if you know this, but was when Rabbi Artson gave me my bat mitzvah charge in 1994. I don't think everyone here knows that Rabbi Artson was my rabbi growing up in that congregation a lot in Mission Viejo during those years in which it grew immensely from 200 families to 600 families. My mother serving um, as one of the synagogue presidents under Rabbi Artson. Um, And so I do have to correct you just a little bit because when you said um, that students that you see in the field um, credit you, we credit you because you are truly the teacher, the master, our mentor. You're a rabbi's rabbi. But it does concern me because as you're speaking about these beautiful pillars of Judaism, ones in which I wish I had a pen and it wasn't Shabbat to scribble and write down each one, For each of those pillars, um, I so appreciate the um, advice of giving space for leaders to implement and innovate, but my concern is where we find the leaders. And so I'm wondering if you'll speak a little bit to that point, um, kind of where you started, the difference between the number of graduating rabbis X amount of years ago to last year, So number one, where do we find these Jewish leaders? Um, And additionally, I'm curious, if we have these four pillars of the Jewish future, then what does rabbinic training look like today and moving forward?
1: So I I will, um, I'm gonna try to be brief in each of the answers, because I also want to make time for you, I've talked at you for a long time, and I'm sure you have things to say too. What I will tell you is that Our response, and and I'm using us as an example, but I know every rabbinical school is doing a similar process. So um, looking at the lower numbers, we at the Ziegler School invited in a blue ribbon commission of experts from around the country, and we said there are no sacred cows. What do we need to change? And after three days of intensive conversation, we then with the faculty and the students and the alumni brainstormed, and we've now unveiled a radically different program in which we're not training the dream rabbi of 1973, right? When I went to rabbinical school, I was told that real rabbis stay on and become professors. And then the less successful rabbis, they go out and they do congregational work for people who are even less Jewish than them. It was insulting on every level and toxic on every level and wrong, and wrong. The strength of the Jewish people to figure out what it needs to thrive and survive should never be underestimated. And the genius is those rabbis who stand with the people but sufficiently educated to bring the tradition to bear. So I went to a rabbinical program that was six years, in which you studied Talmud, so that, and the goal was that eventually you could open a Talmud in the original and teach from it directly. Have any of you seen a rabbi at Sinai Temple ever do that? Open up a Talmud in Aramaic and just start teaching?
0: I do it every Saturday night.
1: I know you do it, but you do it in, you do it in private because you're modest. The answer is no. What you have seen, is each of your rabbis, because I've heard all of them do it, find nuggets of genius in the Talmud, and they put that in a sermon to help make a point. So we need to train rabbis to do that. We don't need to train rabbis to be as though PhDs in rabbinics. So our new Torah curriculum doesn't try. If you want to get a doctorate in rabbinics, you should not come to Ziegler. But if you want to learn the text well enough that you can master it and then share it in a way that helps people live their lives and thrive, well, that we can do in four years. So it's a shorter program. And the last year of the program, the fourth year will be a residency year, which you can do not in LA. You can do in a synagogue or a hospital or a school or an agency where you will learn by doing which it turns out is how people learn in law school when they first practice law. right? So um, it's why doctors have a residency at the end of their program. So we're going to do that too. And, and that plus tuition transparency, tuition is now $7,000. It used to be $34,000. So if you want to help us make that possible, come talk to me when it's not Shabbos. But here's what's happened. This year, I'll give you an early. We used to do an annual, um, we would do twice a year an uh, open house on Facebook for anyone interested in rabbinical school. In previous years, we'd get 20 sign ups, of whom seven would show up. Last open house we did, we had 50 people show up and 27. 50 sign up and 27 show up. Wow. I'm getting inundated by conversations with people not who would have gone somewhere else, people who weren't thinking they could do rabbinical school, but they're looking at the new program and saying, I can do that. So, and I want to hold that as a model for Sinai. Give yourself permission to ask yourself, where are these people? And then don't offer a program where they can come here. Sinai is not this beautiful building. Sinai are these beautiful people and these magnificent clergy. So go out and find the people and do the programming there. I love the fact that you guys did an outdoor service in the park. I, I was so. I have to just say. Okay, I have to just say. When the rabbi was twelve, <laughs> she already knew what she wanted to do, and was a star. So, congratulations to you for knowing that and doing something about it. I would have been very disappointed had you not. But when you guys did that outdoor service, that was one of those moments of, I would never have thought of this, and look how joyous everyone was. Look at the people who poured out into that, So, and that's just gonna start. I know you guys are gonna think of all kinds of things that with your new team, you will transform Sinai from the inside while keeping what's always been great about it. And that I think is the task.
0: So then to continue that conversation, I'm curious, we know across the city, we know across the country the many shuls, the many synagogues that are merging. Um, synagogue after synagogue, are they're in conversations with the smaller shul down the street, or the smaller, smaller shul across the neighborhood, um, trying to find ways to sustain each other. And I guess the question is, talk to us about synagogues and buildings. And the Judaism of tomorrow, the Judaism of the future, and certainly I could list, I will actually, when we were talking about these um, young professionals who are incredibly engaged in the Jewish community according to the Federation study. Uh, What we're told is that what's most important to these young professionals, for them 69% when they talk about their Jewish life, it's leading a moral and ethical life. Mm -hmm. It's connecting family and traditions, that's 62%. Working for justice and equality, 54%. So I'm curious, where's the future of the synagogue building when we think about Uh, the next steps?
1: So I think the challenge is we have to have an ambivalent relationship to our buildings. Mm -hmm. I think they are necessary, and I think we get limited by them. So how do we have this hold close, let go relationship with them? You've already got the data. They want to focus on being good people. Doesn't Judaism have a lot to say on that subject? Some very core Jewish texts on that subject. I can think of an incredible curriculum, and it can be taught anywhere. So part of it is, again, getting out to where they are. But here's the other thing I need to say. We live in the age of the iPod, which is to say, it used to be, if you wanted to be involved in the Jewish community, we're having a class Wednesday night at eight o'clock, and you need to show up, otherwise you're uninvolved. It used to be that if you wanted to listen to music, you turned on the radio and you listened to whatever the DJ was playing. But I don't do that. I'm sure you don't do that either. I haven't listened to a radio station since I can remember. My car even lets me plug in my phone and it plays whatever song I want. And if I'm in the middle of a song and I no longer want to hear it, all I have to do is push a button and it plays me a different song. So, We can't have a pre-iPhone Judaism in an age of iPhones. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be multiple approaches for different people. Look, I was in the main sanctuary. There was a nice turnout. It wasn't all of Sinai Temple's membership by far, but it was a nice turnout. So we should not stop offering the things that there are people who want, but we do have to figure out how to offer the other things that other people want. Mm -hmm. And that's what I meant by we have to make it possible. The question we should be asking when the rabbis come up with brilliant ideas is not would I like that, but can I think of three or four people who would love that? And then can I do something to make it possible to get it out there? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the idea of a solution is honestly part of the problem right, there isn't a single solution, we're gonna be needing to be multiplex. And we're gonna need to offer multiple things at the same time and not worry that we're not all in the same room. I've been to synagogues where, for example, they'll do dance, yoga in one room, they'll do a traditional worship service in a second room, they do a contemporary music thing in a third room, and in the fourth room, they read Israeli fiction. And then they all come together for Kiddush. And there's multiple portals of entry. Um, and, and, And along with multiple portals of entry, can I say something in praise of my friends of Barad Hall? So here's one of the things I love about Sinai Temple and especially Barad Hall. Every year, Jacob comes back for Ne'ilah at the end of Yom Kippur. It's overwhelming. He can't, when he was little, he used to go into the hallway there so he could listen to the music in Barad Hall and the main sanctuary at the same time. Which, if you're looking for a way to do that without either ticket, that's where you go. Um, just don't let me catch you praying. Right? So Jacob comes in at the end. And for the last hour, he comes up on the bima, and the cantor knows that I do not lead services for Nailah because I'm hugging Jacob and Jacob's hugging me. And honestly, what it feels like is God's love, the last hour of Yom Kippur. But here's what I love about Barad Hall. Any other synagogue would call me up afterwards and say, Rabbi, we hired you to lead services. You want to hug your son, you do that on your own time. But when I look around the Kahal in Barad Hall, they're all smiling at us with tears in their eyes because they see the holiness of that. And that's why I love them because they don't get distracted by the technical because they're blinded by the sacred. And I think if we can create synagogues that focus on what matters, can I tell you one more Jacob story? So my 30-year-old son is pretty severely autistic. Those of you who are not in Barat Hall, I'm telling you. Um, We go to Ikar normally. So there were services two Sabbaths ago, three Sabbaths ago. There was no bar mitzvah or anything. So Rabbi Brous went over and asked Jacob if he wanted to open the ark, which of course he does. And then um, she said, hey, do you want to take the Torah out of the ark? And he did. Jacob has been to synagogue his whole life. So he's memorized the entire service. So the cantor didn't start when Jacob thought he should. So Jacob just started leading the Torah service. (laughs) He's thoughtful in that way. (laughs) And because the people at Ikar are as wonderful as the people at Barad Hall... The cantor didn't say, hey, wait a minute, that's my job, back off. He just, when Jacob finished, he said the responsive line, as did everybody. And so Jacob went on, and he led the entire Torah service. And then when it got to be time to take the Torah around the room, he didn't ask, he just started taking it around the room. And and that's who we're called to be. We're not supposed to be rule enforcers. We're supposed to be God wrestlers. And and that's going to be your generation's job at Sinai. You're going to take the amazing foundation that you've been given. And it is. It's an amazing foundation. The footprint of Sinai, I don't mean the building, I mean its impact, is incredible. And now it's time to transform for the new age. And we do that by Building on what came before us, but then being open to things shifting. Because there's a whole lot of people who need what Sinai can offer if it can refocus.
3: Yes. Correct.
1: You Do you
3: think yes. Google yeah. is affecting religion? By which I I have... We're gonna so, repeat if it's okay, Rabbi
0: Artson, you'll repeat the question because I also know the people on Zoom won't yes. be able to hear those who are asking questions.
1: Right. So um let me try. <laughs> There were actually two different parts to what you said. The first part is that growing up in a different country, in a country that had a culture, um, that um, when asked a question, you'd be told it's, you do it because it's written that way. And so the, the lesson there is don't question. Um, and then the second thing is, does Google and the internet change religion? Because people don't necessarily ask an individual. They just Google it. So let me share with you my favorite piece of information about the Talmud. And let's stipulate for purposes of this conversation that the Talmud is the world's most Jewish document. Okay, can we agree to that? There's nothing more Jewish in the world than the Talmud. The Talmud has 5,000 disputes. Do you know how many of those disputes are resolved in the Talmud? About 50. 50 which means the Talmud understands that what's interesting are the questions. Questions lead to greater understanding. If you approach the world with curiosity rather than defensiveness, you'll get more out of the world. And the minute you give an answer, you've ended the conversation. So the Talmud is just all conversation and questions. No answers. Somehow we lost that, and I think there's a reason why we lost that. We lost that in Christian countries. We lost that in Christian countries because in Christianity there are answers. They answer questions nobody should have answers to, but they have answers. And I think that's become true of Islam as well. Islam is about rulings. But Judaism is all about questions. You know the old joke, if you hate organized religion, you'll love Judaism? It's actually not a joke. Has the internet changed religion? It has changed everything. It's changed everything. I know the minute Putin drops a bomb in Crimea. And I know when a brave woman in Iran resists the regime. And even more to the point, She knows when someone in America is standing with her. The world will never be the same. And look, I write scholarly papers without ever leaving my home now. I have access to the world's great libraries on my computer screen. So yeah, but here's what's never gonna change. The need for human relationships. I don't offer my students greater knowledge. They can find everything I know. But what they can't find online is someone who sees them for who they are and celebrates them and believes in them in the moments they stop believing in themselves. And that is why people are going to come to community. Because there are times in your life where you. You ask the question because you'd like the information, but much of the time that's actually a disguised request for a presence, and for hand holding and a hug, and, and that you'll never get online.
0: Other questions?
1: I've stunned you into silence. There you go.
0: Yeah.
3: Jay, go ahead about the relation. You mm-hmm. say, Okay, you have to show up at a little.
1: Um, So let me just tell you all, I'm 63. You're welcome to ask two questions in a row. But when you ask two questions, you erase the first question. Not proud of that. It's just, I'm just, I'll never lie to you. Dick Israel is a reform trained rabbi who is a Hillel rabbi who wrote a book called Kosher Pig and Other Questions. I never had the privilege of learning with him directly, but that book is a must read book. Kosher Pig and Other Questions. Right? And it's all based on real things people asked him. So, for example, someone said to him in real life, um, it's, I've signed up for the marathon. And the marathon is being held on Yom Kippur. Am I allowed to drink? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Uh,
1: And it was the the title of the book. (laughs) The title of the book is based on a similar, I don't think this happened in real life. I think this is a make-believe rabbi joke. But he said, um, Jewish guy, decides he's never had pork, and so he wants to have pork, but he wants to, he's kosher, so he wants to do it authentically. He wants to shack the pig, and he wants to prepare it kosherly and drain the blood, and, and then he'll try pork and see what the big deal of it is. So he shacks the pig, it's a disaster, comes to the rabbi, and he says, Rabbi, I have a, a shila for you, a question, uh, which is, I, I wanted to try pork. So I shechted the pig and I noticed that the knife has a nick in it. Is it kosher? <laughs> oh. So it's a great book. You had a first question, it was about the building, don't say anything. I'm only 63, that's a young man here. Um, So here's the weird part that underlies that question. I get asked that question a lot in one form or another. Here's how I get it from Israelis. When I tell Israelis that American Jews don't think of themselves as living in exile, they get offended. Because they say, you're telling us that where you live as a Jew should just be a choice of where you want to live. And I say, yes, that is what... Like it or not, that's what American Jews think. They may be deluding themselves, but that is what we think. Um, And then they say with indignation, well, if there's no reason to have to live in Israel, why should I make the sacrifices I'm making? And I always say to them, if the only reason you're living in Israel is to sacrifice on my behalf, don't do it. The people I know who live in Israel live in Israel because they think it's the greatest privilege they could possibly have. Israel's great. You should love living in Israel. Don't do a sacrifice for me. And I want to say the same thing to you. If you think the only thing that's getting people coming to your programming is you don't offer them alternatives, that's a very weak endorsement of your program. Mm. So I will just say... Personally, listening to a Wolpe sermon in person is nothing like watching it on a screen. And there will be enough people who will get that that they'll always opt for it. But some days you don't want to get out of your pajamas. And sometimes you've had cancer surgery and you can't leave your house. Why would you want to deprive those people of the ability to show up as they choose, and and you showed up even though it's online, do you think you're so different than everyone else? I think other people also will show up if it's compelling. So I wanna turn that program back to you, which is don't complain about why other people are going elsewhere, do something about it make it so they want to come. And you need to figure out what that is. I can't tell you what that is, but, but I'm very unsympathetic to businesses who tell me I hate that people are buying from my competitor, they should be buying from me. And that's more or less what synagogues say all the time. So if going golfing is more attractive than your service, do something about it. That's on you. That's
3: right. Make our product better. Lily, I'm happy to see you too, Lily. I uh Yes. Great. So
1: I want to I wanna say something so I'm sure I'm not misunderstood. I love traditional Jewish prayer. I brought an Orthodox prayer book to pray with because I love the traditional prayers and I love them all in Hebrew and I love Musaf. So I don't necessarily love Musaf that takes a whole hour, but I love Musaf. But here's the thing. If I make a Judaism that I love, there will be a small group of people who agree with me and a whole lot of people who won't. So if what I want to do is provide Jewish entry for lots of people, then I need to create points of entry that I wouldn't want to take advantage of. So I'm struck, for example, that you have a beautiful room that would make a magnificent meditation space during the same time as the service and if you were if i were being asked about creating a meditating service at sinai i would use the sidur as a textbook which is to say i would pick two paragraphs in it every week and i would teach that and then meditate on it Let's read the Ahava Rabbah, and then we're going to meditate for half an hour on what everlasting love does in our hearts. And we'll breathe Ahava. I'm not even good at this, and I just did that. You're welcome. <laughs> right? I th- what, what always amazes me is the rigidity of people on all sides. It doesn't have to be meditation or Jewish. You could have people think of Sinai as the place that has the most exciting Jewish meditation in the country and where people will, over the course of a year, build a binder of all kinds of classical liturgy that speaks to their heart because it's not just a run-through-it. So, do that.
0: If I could just speak to that. What I think is also uh, a perspective that we don't necessarily say out loud is if someone is maybe dressed in a little bit more formal wear in a main sanctuary service and they see someone in yoga clothes, what would it be like if we weren't deeply offended knowing that there are different services happening at the same time, people connecting to God in a different way, we just might need to dress in a different way as well. Well, could I I even
1: go bigger than that? I have a line I say to Alana, which is, I know I'm doing a scholar in residence when I look down and there's a tie. (laughs) I like this tie, too. Um, But what I can tell you is that my normal Shabbos, when I go to Icar, I dress in a way that you wouldn't let in the building. And here's the thing, that clothing is very comfortable. It's really comfortable. And there are people who dress up to go to Icar. I mean, not Sinai-level dress-up, but, you know, not schlub. Um, And then there are people like the Artsons, and we're definitely on the schlub side. But no one at Sinai cares how you look. They don't care whether you have a piercing or not. They don't care whether your hair is a natural color or not. They don't care whether you shaved it all off. They don't care. And they don't care whether you're sitting during the service or you're swaying in the back of the room. They don't care. And they don't care if you're wearing a dress or pants. They don't care. And I'm not saying that has to be the standard here. Different places get to have different standards. But you should think about if you want to be a really welcoming place, welcome is come as you are. And, and how do you make it easy for people to know that they can come as they are? That's something worth having a conversation about. There's something I miss when I'm in a and I look around um, and I see how schlubby everyone is, I think that's not really Shabbos Dick. that's not really respectful. And then I look at me and I realize I'm part of the problem. <laughs> Um, I wore my Sinai socks today, Um, but you might want to think about if you want to be really welcoming, like let's imagine this multiplex Sinai in which five or six different things are happening and then we all come together for Kiddush. Mm -hmm. Then part of it has to be the same rule that we have at my workplace, which by the way is the rule at your workplace which is no comments about physical appearance. Don't tell people they've lost weight. Don't tell people they're looking bad or good. Say things like, I'm happy to see you, and I'm so glad you could be here. Right, But no assessment of physical appearance, none. Um, Which if you're like me, means not only that you don't say it, you have to not think it. Because I unfortunately have this illness in which, if I think it, it comes out of my mouth. So, my children have helped to cure me of this problem. Um, but, but think about it, because I know Sinai presents itself as a welcoming place. Welcoming is come as you are. One or two
0: more. I thought that was Michael behind the mask. Hi, Michael.
3: So maybe you and I should have that conversation in private. I'm
1: not sure that everyone wants to know marketing strategies of rabbinical schools, but let me say the part that I think pertains to everything. Given the internet, marketing is totally different than what it once was. So we didn't do a lot of paid marketing. I mean, we're do, we have an advertisement campaign on um, Facebook and then on a couple, media markets that young people look at more, um, to announce the open house, for example. But what we did was we got articles written about the new curriculum. And the thing is, there's a lot of young Jews thinking about the rabbinate, and they're mostly thinking, I can't do it. But they'll find the resources. If you put it up on the internet, they'll find it. I don't think this is a marketing problem. I think this is a product problem which is we're, we're offering a rabbinical school for a different time in this time. And, and I say that, by the way, as a graduate of HUC, I, went, I didn't go there for rabbinical school, but I got my doctorate at HUC with David Ellenson. So I'm a grateful alum, and I'm meeting with HUC's president when he's in town next week or the week after to talk about some of this. Um, we are allies in this fight. Right? And I firmly believe that all the rabbinical schools will solve this problem, or we'll all go down together. Mm-hmm. Um, so the world needs a vibrant reform rabbinical school, and, and I salute you for your work with it.
0: Okay, How about just one more? One more? Jerry, you get the last one. Because we're nearing 2 o'clock, so go ahead, Jerry. Oh no! Please don't apologize, Jerry. Thank you. <laughs>
1: Sorry. I appreciated
0: it.
3: <laughs> mm. So, Jerry,
1: I just want to say I like your sweater. <laughs> And that I didn't notice that you complimented her clothing and have said nothing about my beautiful Parisian blue suit. (laughs) Others would notice that, but I rise above those things. (laughs) Um, Nobody's getting it perfect. I know a lot of places that are working on it. So Sinai is one of them. I've seen some of the things that Rabbi will be implemented during his time that were amazing. And I've seen some of the things already that the new rabbis are doing that I think are brilliant and wonderful. The other thing that's dangerous about pointing to a place is I can't tell Adat Shalom, look at what Sinai is doing. Because that's not helpful to them. And I can't say to Sinai, look at what Ikar's is doing. Because it's a very different group of people with very different values for what they want. So what I can encourage all of us to be doing is look at each other, not to copy, but to say, what are their ideas that we might have a different solution for, but what they've showed me is it doesn't have to be that other way. And in that regard, yes, I can name dozens of places around the country that are doing all kinds of interesting things. Nobody has solved the problem because I don't think this is the kind of problem that gets solved. I think this is the ongoing constant work of perpetual reinvention. Um, And so here I want to hold out what I take to be the rabbinic ideal. There's a principle in Jewish law, uh, in Aramaic, that the law follows the most recent authority. That's an interesting thing, because we tend to think that what the law should be is what they said at Sinai, we should keep doing that. But the Talmud's principle is, if a later authority rules differently than an earlier one, you should be biased in favor of the most recent. That suggests that Judaism is always in process, always reinventing itself. And I think that should be Sinai's attitude too, is what does it take to reinvent tomorrow's Judaism today? And then let's be at the forefront of that and be willing to fail. Harold Schulweis always used to always say, synagogues are living laboratories. Don't be afraid to fail. So you'll try something, it won't work. You'll tweak it or you'll get rid of it and you'll try something else. Don't don't be afraid to, frail, to fail. There's enough loyalty to the institution that you can survive that.
0: So I just want to end with a quick anecdote. You may not know this about Rabbi Artson, but growing up when I would come to services, and by the way, Ellen Guzik, my mother, would always make the Guzik children, all four of us, sit in the front row of services yep. um, with the door and the chumash in our hands. So um, I was a witness to this, but Rabbi Artson would, um, he wouldn't give his divrei Torah, his sermons from the Bema, he would walk down from the Bema in order to have a conversation, a dialogue with all of us. And what I learned as um, a child then, a teenager then, is that Judaism is meant to come close. That it doesn't have to feel so very far away, but in the exact way that you're describing bringing Judaism into our homes and experiencing the ritual, you taught me that, mm-hmm. that in order to um, be lifted, in order to feel um, as if our souls are enriched, we have to feel as if we are close to our Judaism. So I wanna thank you for teaching me that. Um, and in this instance, I can tell from, how it's two o'clock. We don't usually stay till two o'clock. Yeah. Everyone stayed yeah. because you brought us in close. Thank you. And so I just wanna thank you. <laughs> And, of course, I want to thank Roz and Abner for your generosity.
1: What tomorrow? What tomorrow? Uh, tomorrow night. Um, hold on. Tomorrow morning.
0: Tomorrow morning. Oh, Gina knows. <laughs> Ten o'clock tomorrow morning and, I'm sorry, 9.30 is the breakfast. 10 o'clock is the yes. conversation. Yes,
1: 9.30. It's a light breakfast. It will be made out of ultraviolet and human <laughs> visible light. But is so it too late wanna, to sign
0: up or you'll no? You'll want to
1: eat first.
0: Okay, so if you, are, if you have yet to sign up for tomorrow or for Monday, we very much encourage you to please come um, and sign up at the door uh, with Judy Bagan. Correct. You don't have to have come already registered um, for Sunday morning's brunch, uh, breakfast, or Monday evening's um, uh, dialogue, which is at 7 o'clock. Thank you everyone so much, and we wish you a Shabbat Shalom.